This is Dr. Mark McCullough. I will be reading from the seventh canto of Dante's Inferno, translated by Mark Musa. Pape Satan, Pape Satan Lepe, the voice of Plutus clucked these words at us, and that kind sage to whom all things were known said reassuringly, Pay no attention to your fear, for no matter what his power be, he cannot stop our journey down this rock. Then he turned towards the swollen face of rage, crying, Be quiet, cursed wolf of hell. Feed on the burning bile that rots your guts. This journey to the depths does have a reason, for it is willed on high where Michael wrought a just revenge for the bold assault on God. As sails swollen by wind, when the ship's mast breaks, collapsed, deflated, tangled in a heap, just so the savage beast fell to the ground. And then we started down a fourth abyss, making our way along the dismal slope, where all the evil of the world is dumped. Ah, God's avenging justice! Who could heap up suffering and pain as strange as I saw here? How can we let our guilt bring us to this? As every wave Charybdis whirls to sea, comes crashing against its countercurrent wave, so these folks here must dance their roundelay. More shades were here than anywhere above, and from both sides to the sound of their screams, straining their chests, they rolled enormous weights. And when they met and clashed against each other, they turned to push the other way, one side screaming, Why hoard? The other side, Why waste? And so they moved back round the gloomy circle, returning on both sides to opposite poles to scream their shameful tune another time. Again they came to clash and turn and roll, forever in their semicircle joust. And I, my heart pierced through by such a sight, spoke out, My master, please explain to me, who are these people here? Were they all priests? These tonsured souls I see there to our left? He said, In their first life all you see here had such myopic minds they could not judge, with moderation, when it came to spending. Their barking voices make this clear enough. When they arrive at the two points on the circle, where opposing guilts divide them into two. The ones who have the bald spot on their heads were priests and popes and cardinals, in whom avarice is most likely to prevail. And I, Master, in such a group as this, I should be able to recognize a few who dirtied themselves by such crimes as these. And he replied, Yours is an empty hope. Their undistinguished life that made them foul now makes it harder to distinguish them. Forever they will come to their two battles. Then, from the tomb, they will be resurrected, these with tight fists, those without any hair. It was squandering and hoarding that had robbed them of the lovely world and got them in this brawl. I will not waste choice words describing it. You see, my son, the short-lived mockery of all the wealth that is in fortune's keep, over which the human race is bickering. For all the gold that is or ever was beneath the moon won't buy a moment's rest for even one among these weary souls. Master, 
Now tell me what this fortune is you touched upon before. What is she like who holds all worldly wealth within her fists? And he to me, O foolish race of men, how overwhelming is your ignorance. Now listen while I tell you what she means. That one whose wisdom knows infinity made all the heavens and gave each one a guide, and each sphere shining shines on all the others, so light is spread with equal distribution. For worldly splendors he decreed the same and ordained a guide and general mistress, who would at her discretion shift the world's vain wealth from nation to nation, house to house, with no chance of interference from mankind. So while one nation rules, another falls, according to whatever she decrees, her sentence hidden like a snake in grass. Your knowledge has no influence on her. She provides for change, she judges, and she rules her domain as do the other gods their own. Her changing changes never take a rest. Necessity keeps her in constant motion as men come and go to take their turn with her. And thus is she so crucified and cursed. Even those in luck who should be praising her instead revile her and condemn her acts. But she is blessed, and in her bliss hears nothing. With all God's joyful first created creatures, she turns her sphere, and blessed turns it with joy. Now, let's move down to greater wretchedness. The stars that rose when I set out for you are going down. We cannot stay too long. We cross the circle to its other bank, passing a spring that boils and overflows in a ditch, the spring itself cut out. The water was a deeper dark than purse, and we, with its gray waves for company, made our way down along a rough, strange path. This dingy little stream when it had reached the bottom of the gray malignant slopes, becomes a swamp that has the name of Styx. And I, intent on looking as we passed, saw muddy people moving in that marsh, all naked with their faces scarred by rage. They fought each other, not with hands alone, but struck with head and chest and feet as well. Their teeth they tore each other limb from limb. And the good teacher said, My son, now see the souls of those that anger overcame. And I ask you to believe me when I say, Beneath the slimy top are sighing souls who make these water bubble at the surface. Your eyes will tell you this. Just look around. Bogged in the slime, they say, Sluggish we were in the sweet air made happy by the sun, and the smoke of sloth was smothering in our hearts. Now we lie sluggish here in this black muck. This is the hymn they gurgle in their throats, but cannot sing in words that truly sound. And making a wide arc, we walked around the pond between the dry bank and the slime, our eyes still fixed on those who gobbled mud. We came in time to the foot of a high tower. So an outline of my explication of Canto 7 will be, first I will point out some different translations for line 9, a description of Plutus. Secondly, I will discuss um, not one, not two, not three, but four 
categories of sinners Dante describes in, here in this canto. And then I will finally uh, move my commentary to Dante's important um, treatment of fortune uh, in this canto, probably what the canto is best remembered for. So let's take a look closely at line 9 in several translations. 5 to be exact. The line uh, from Musa, this is Virgil's um, address, a rebuke to Plutus. Um, starting in line 4, he says, Do not let fear defeat you, for whatever be his power, he cannot stop our journey down this rock. Then he turned towards that swollen face of rage, crying, Virgil, Be quiet, cursed wolf of hell. Feed on the burning bile that rots your guts. This last line, 9, Dorothy Sayers translated in her version of Dante, Go choke in thine own venom. Mandelbaum translates it thus, Let your vindictiveness feed on yourself. Longfellow, the great American poet, translates this, consume within thyself with thine own rage. And finally, Hollander, my favorite, in this, in this uh, translation, let your fury, let your fury feed itself inside you. Let your fury feed itself inside you. These are different translations and point out different aspects to Plutus, um, who is the god of wealth and um, is, uh, is mentioned at the end of Canto VI as he, as he that is Dante and Virgil approach, um, approach this circle where we will find four groups of sinners. So Plutus um, in each one of these translations, translations is pointed out as having uh, uh, an aspect of anger and of appetite. And so combining uh, Dante's uh, previous uh, treatment of the gluttonous with uh, those who we will now see here, who include the wrathful, the angry. All five translations also point out the way in which sin the way in which uh, appetite consumes the one who is gluttonous or uh, lustful or you know prodigal or wrathful, etc. So the wolf imagery, the symbol of avarice, greed. There's a inflation of this uh, figure of Plutus to sort of represent all four. Of the um, of the sinners that will be described, and also a deflation uh, as well. Notice um, that there is a reference to wind here as well, um, as uh, in the epic simile starting in line thirteen, a sail swollen by the wind, etc. And we'll find this um, wind uh, a, a sort of. This, this idea of wind, the idea of deflation uh, throughout uh, the Inferno, most famously in Canto 34. 
Um, but this def this this deflating or uh, comment that Virgil makes towards him to point out the purposelessness of denying Dante entry into hell or into this section of hell deflates him, reminds him of his powerlessness and really the powerlessness of wealth, the powerlessness of greed, how greed makes us beasts and how greed eats us from the inside. So whether it's, you know, venom, choking on venom, feeding on bile that rots your own guts or fury feeding itself, consuming itself. These are all images of the implosion that sin brings to the sinner. And what we see in the first grouping of sinners, the prodigals and the... Um, the miserly or the hoarders and the spendthrifts is that they're engaged in a war with one another, a jousting. Um, line 55, Musa translates, eternally the two will come to blows. And so just as in Canto 6, there was a eternalness to the rain falling and the inability of the dam to find any rest or any peace in that rain, so too will eternally these two groups fight one another. And it's brilliant. It's, br it's, a, it's a brilliant concoction by Dante to make, uh, to put these two groups together whose, ostensibly whose behaviors are different, right? One group um, has hoarded, has um, has collected as much wealth for themselves as possible. The other group has done, has spent as much as they can and has not, um, and, and has not uh, saved uh, whatsoever. And so these two groups sort of are the, you know, the conditions for the torture of the other. Um, they say to one another, one side, why hoard? And the other side, uh, why waste? So they are throwing out these uh, these sort of rhetorical questions on all of this, and they 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 sort of intensify one another's hatred for the other. Um, the the contrapasso or the image that uh, is the sin is the uh, rolling these enormous weights, straining against uh, their chest. And so in this, in this joust, this semi-circle joust, they're clashing and turning and rolling. And, um, and, and then Dante turns to Virgil and asks him to, you know, to describe uh, who these, who these uh, figures are. Dante wants to identify him. And just like in Canto VI, um, they are undistinguishable, or rather indistinguishable undistinguished life that made them found that makes it harder to distinguish them so in this group of hoarders and spendthrifts we, we don't even recognize them um, uh, what we what we do know um, in many ways is that uh, there will be uh, in hell according to Dante uh, many members of of the church right priests and popes and cardinals the bald spot on their heads 
he says, uh, Virgil says, is most likely uh, to prevail, that avarice is most likely to prevail in this group of, 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 of damned. Um, so Dante uh, pulls no punches um, against the church. Um, and he will later say, I think it's Canto 19, where um, he'll say that the, con- the donation of Constantine has produced um, a great uh, temptation for the church. It's worldly power, uh, even though it, you know, embraced it, the, the church embraced the worldly power, is really the occasion for, uh, for sins and for damnation. And this is a perfect example um, of, of that, those temptations and of the members of the, of the church, whether they be priests or, you know, brothers or whomever, um, will, will fall into this temptation of, of avarice. Looking at the different translations, I noticed that Sawyer had in her, um, in, in her notes, uh, a really, she's, the, she's one of the best as it relates to vice, virtual and vice, herself being a Catholic and herself interested in this question of Catholic literature in her time. But she's got a great uh, footnote. Let me just read from her. Um, she, she, at the end of Canto se- uh, 7, in her commentary, she says, the hoarders and the spendthrifts, mutual indulgence has already declined in selfish appetite. Now that appetite becomes aware of the incompatible and equally selfish appetites of other people. Indifference becomes mutual antagonism, imagined here by the antagonism between hoarding and squandering. And this is brilliant, right? She, she, she gives a kind of uh, declining, um, you know, um, uh, scale for um, what begins with, you know, what could be considered the virtue of um, of saving or of spending, uh, you know, in a, in a way that's responsible into a kind of uh, selfish appetite. And this selfish appetite, we remember, is the, um, is the, the major characteristic of all uh, the damned who are found in this first third of hell, right? It is that those who could not um, employ reason um, for the for the purposes of of directing their appetites, and so in this case, the appetite for money, um, the appetite either or the misunderstanding we might say, or the misappropriation of funds, uh, produces this uh, eternal uh, joust, which is really a feudal war between all types of people, all nations, um, classes, etc. Okay, so for right now, let's rush ahead past fortune. We'll come back to Dante's treatment of fortune, and let's take up uh, this um, Dante's description of the wrathful. To understand best Dante's um, dramatization of anger, um, it it involves it involves at least understanding to some degree how Saint Thomas spoke about anger in three ways in his commentary on Aristotle's um, ethics. This is book, his ethics book four, um, section five. Um, but no, I'm sorry, that's the commentary on four, five. And in that, um, St. Thomas summarizes Aristotle's groupings of anger into three categories. He, 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 the first category is 
the choleric. Um, we think of the choleric anger as a kind of sudden impulsive anger. You know, that, that kind of goes almost as quickly as it came. So when there's an angry outburst, this is, this is the kind of anger that people usually apologize for. If they apologize at all, it'll be a person will just rah, irritated, bump their toe, maybe even road rage in a way, like, ah, you know, they get angry, and it almost leaves as, as, as soon as it comes. So in many ways, that's kind of the, the, the choleric, quick comes and quickly goes. And that's the first category. And the second category that St. Thomas summarizes from Aristotle, and this would have been a commentary that Dante is working on here in dramatic form, is the the kind of the bitter, uh, the way in which anger makes a person bitter. And we see this in uh, particularly in young boys who at an early age, let's say in their early teens, post-adolescence, they're angry. Um, and there's, there's a, it, it, it's, it's not a quick come and go. It's a, it's kind of almost a, an ongoing James Dean like bitterness. Um, it lasts long in a person and it's not easily gotten rid of though in my experience with teenagers, um, one of the wonderful things about them is they do tend to be idealistic as well. And so, um, idealism can, and hope can, can make a big difference, but putting that aside, it's, it's, it's a middle ground for anger. It's, it's an anger in the, it's an anger in the heart that is not easily expressed and certainly not easily released, but um, it's the kind of anger that we might see uh, with resentment, uh, for example. Um, and um, and it's not easily let go, and it creates in, uh, especially in teenagers, it, it goes from anger in their early years, and then as they as they grow, and as their sort of as their brains develop. Um, and they become less impulsive, it turns almost into something like depression. So I think this is why a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists will prescribe ADHD medication for impulsive, impulsive and angry and irritated individuals. Because without that, without, um, without some kind of way of releasing some of that, uh, some of that anger, often it will turn into something else because it's kind of a, a, a depression, a, a sullenness. It's almost like a, someone's been trapped inside of a jar. I'm not endorsing medication for teenagers. In fact, uh, I'm, pretty, um, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about the use of stimulants for teenagers and stimulants for anyone. However, this is what the psychiatric world has currently Done, And I mention this because it seems to me that this second category that St. Thomas summarizes is uh, closest to a kind of depression. There's a sullenness to it, even the way in which the, um, uh, these souls are trapped under the marsh and there's just bubbles that arise. The third category is, um, is a much more difficult kind of anger, very hostile, very long-lasting, often directed at others. Um, against those it should not be directed against. And the and often the only way to release this for the person suffering from this kind of anger is through violence. And so Dante includes the first two categories, the we might say the choleric and the bitter, in, uh, in this canto. And he leaves the third category, 
for the sins of violence, which is in the second third of the Inferno. So these are the two, these are the two groupings that we see in this second half of Dante's um, seventh canto, and um, and they're divided up into anger as a as an impulse, and anger as a a kind of um, a force which, as I said before, keeps the damned in a kind of enclosed, hermetically sealed self. Um, the sullenness, right? This Hollander's translation reads at line 121, we were sullen in the sweet air that in the sun rejoices, filled as we were with slothful fumes. Now we are sullen in black mire. This hymn they gurgle in their gullets, for they cannot get a word out whole. So just as their words are, just as their faces and their, and their sort of their beings are, are covered, so too their language is, um, it, it is reduced to, to, to bubbles and gurgles and, and bubbles. Did I say bubbles already? Well, it's good. Bubbles is a good word. Just say it twice. So fixed in the slime, they're sort of reduced to anim, anima, to animals, to beasts, not even beasts. And the hymn that the damned sing here is not even a hymn that you know the lyrics to. So it's a another one of these brilliant demonic inversions uh, that Dante uh, that Dante creates here. Um, there's so much more to say about the wrathful, um, uh, and we'll say more about it. I'll say more about it in uh, in this uh, the cantos that uh, develop the sins of violence. But it's it is interesting to see you know, that Dante is working within the tradition that he understood from St. Thomas Aquinas, who, of course, is still new, is still a new philosopher in Dante's time, not as established as we would think of him being established today. Um, and also the kind of, the kind of psycho, the psychological, you know, uh, description of, of the sullen here, who look a lot like, to me, the depressed, um, you know, not clinical depression per se, but a kind of, I don't know, uh, a, 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 if you've ever, if you've ever really um, either experienced it or, or faced it in another person, there, there is a kind of holding um, uh, to something like anger. Uh, and so these, these figures, I think, best typify uh, that holding and, and what we would think of in our contemporary world as a, as a kind of de angry depression. So to return to the section where Dante, um, through the words of Virgil, discusses the topic of fortune is extraordinary if you know something about the tradition. Um, fortune in Dante is given the most sympathetic portrait um, in, the, in the medieval world, um, more so than, than St. Augustine or Boethius before him, certainly more so than how some uh, ancient writers would have written about fortune, but it's really extraordinary that Dante is, gives this portrait um, and sort of com, sort of understands fortune or or chance as being a kind of providential uh, care um, uh, for human beings. Um, the section in which the, the standard medieval text uh, for fortune is Boethius and. Um, 
I, w- I won't go through it with you. I was I I almost I almost prepared a a separate talk about book two of Boethius, and maybe I still will on a separate recording. It's just so important. But just to summarize, in that passage from the second book of of the Consolations of Philosophy, um, Lady Philosophy, who is a major character with the author, um, it corrects um, corrects the writer of Bo- Boethius. Uh, uh, for hanging his hopes on um, on those things that are fallible, quote, fallible, fleeting, and of little importance. And so even though fortune, um, uh, fortune does uh, sort of is under, is sort of under God's um, control, uh, fortune herself is personified by a woman, is, is fleeting and of little importance, fickle, mischievous. And Bo, uh, Boethius actually offers that Wheel of Fortune, which is a very famous image that Dante doesn't really repeat here in the same way. Um, so a bit of wisdom Boethius unpacks for us there is to not depend on fortune because uh, fortune is in control herself of things that are fleeting. So you shouldn't have depended on your goods uh, they're not important anyway. Um, Dante adds here in Canto Seven a, a positive note, and how does he do that? Well, he he doesn't he acknowledges the kind of the what we might say the um, the it's not random. I don't want to use the word random, but the but the the, the seemingly random um, actions of fortune, but like. A serpent in the grass. We cannot see truly what fortune is doing. She is under the power, the control of God, and does the job that God of the universe has set her out to do. She's she's like an angel in this way. And so Dante here is playing a little bit. Um, I wouldn't. It's not heresy, and it's but it's an unorthodox portrayal of fortune. And he basically says in this passage that, yes, you should not depend on fortune, but fortune plays a very important role. She's right. She's like an angel. She works with God towards divine uh, providence. Now, all of this is said by Virgil, so, okay, we take it with a grain of salt. Maybe this is not Dante. And some commentators have suggested that it isn't, uh, because in an earlier work of Dante's, he said almost just the opposite, right? He said, this unequal distribution of goods, it's defective, and um, that this is, a, this is a big question mark in the world as to why some are gifted through uh, fortune, uh, these good things. But here, if, if, if that indeed, if, if, if the Inferno is indeed um, Dante's view, and I don't have any reason to think it's not, it's a 180-degree uh, change. Uh, from what he wrote in the Convivio earlier on in his life. Here, fortune is not defective and is not to be uh, sort of seen as a pagan god, but rather um, a secret. It has like a secret ministry. Um, even says a general minister and guide in the uh, music translation, uh, a ministress. And so this is... um. So for, 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 for students of, 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 
ancient and medieval texts and the discussion of fortune leading all the way back to, to Seneca and even before that, Dante is a, an important formulation or reformulation of the, um, of the way in which fortune or uh, serendipity or luck or how, whatever you want to call it can be um, a good, a force for good and a force for divine providence. And he, in that way, he separates himself from the tradition uh, we associate with St. Augustine. Another piece, uh, kind of more of the aesthetics of all of this, is that, you know, this discussion of fortune, which is actually very important to Dante's entire philosophy about the world, is that fortune is set in opposition to Plutus, right? So Plutus is this angry, sullen, sort of god of wealth who who believes that wealth is not just significant but but worthy of depending upon and the power that comes with it but there's something um there's something very i don't know again sullen and angry about plutus and and, and not very life-giving whereas fortune who is before dante usually thought of as kind of fickle and mischievous and of little importance is actually given quite an important role in this um in this secret ministry of redistribution of of goods not based on merit but based on something else and if we understand uh, this contrast between plutus and fortune we do understand something about living which is not to depend on those things that are uh that are fleeting at the same time to acknowledge that there's some kind of providential design as to why some are you know rewarded with good luck and others are not and it's not simply random or arbitrary but it's um it's certainly not based on merit either but it is for according to dante it is for the good of the world it is divinely providential and so this discussion in Canto V of fortune, and certainly in fortune's personification as opposed to Plutus and these other wrathful characters, is, a, is, is, is an important piece of philosophy um, of Dante's time. And one that would be, I'm not sure how, um, I'm not really so sure how influential Dante's formulation of fortune is since really post-Dante you get, you know, writers like, Writers and thinkers like Machiavelli, who will think of fortune in the as a fallible, fleeting little of a little importance as well. Um, however, it's still an interesting bright spot um, for the for this um, for this important uh, philosophical element uh, to thinking about the the meaningfulness of of our of our lives and our world. So worth worth digging into, worth discussing. Um, and I hope uh, to hear from you about your thoughts about um, fortune, uh, maybe even in a personal way in which fortune plays a role uh, or doesn't play a role in your thinking about um, about life and its and meaning and how people um, how people live and what people depend on in their lives.